In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Good morning. So we start out this morning with a little bit of biblical confusion, which we're kind of used to here at Trinity. In this case, the confusion has to do with this certain female that appears in Mark's gospel, a certain female that's dancing, dancing in front of her stepfather, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and in front of a large gathering of courtiers and officers and leaders of Galilee, <clears throat> all of them assembled for Herod's birthday party. And Herod's stepdaughter dances so wonderfully that in his enthusiasm, Herod declares that he will give her anything that she asks for, even half my kingdom, he says. So the girl consults with her mother, comes back with her mother's demand, which is to have the head of the John the Baptist on a platter. Now, the confusions with this story begin right away with this person's name. In our translation, oddly, her name is Herodias, but that's confusing because Herodias was actually her mother's name. The girl's name, according to the Roman historian Josephus, was Salome, or Salome, I guess, depending on whether or not you've watched the 1953 movie starring Rita Hayworth, and I do not recommend it. <laughs> anyway, that's how they pronounced her name, but I prefer Salome. It's just more poetical and sounds a little bit less like salami. <laughs> so Salome, of course, has been immortalized throughout the centuries as the embodiment of female sexual power, or if you prefer a more Puritan interpretation, as a living example of the evils of sexual temptation. Poor Salome herself had nothing to do and did nothing to deserve this reputation. The reality of who she actually was has been buried under mountains of lascivious paintings and melodramatic plays and movies and operas that have eroticized her and fetishized her beyond all recognition. It was Oscar Wilde who borrowed an idea from some Parisian burlesque shows that he was frequenting at the time when he wrote this truly awful play in which Salome, is said to have danced the dance of the seven veils. One historian, apparently undeterred by facts, has gone so far as to credit Salome with the invention of the striptease. <laughs> the French, not surprisingly, have been especially fond of this version of Salome. One French writer of the 19th century describes her as extorting a cry of lust and concupiscence from an old man by the lascivious contortions of her body, who breaks the will, masters the mind of a king. He goes on at unseemly length. Uh, she is, he says, a symbol of vice, the goddess of hysteria, the curse of beauty supreme, a monstrous beast of the apocalypse, indifferent, irresponsible, insensible, poisoning. Oh boy, 
All of this, all of these books and plays and movies and paintings, all of it derived from this simple little half sentence in Mark's gospel, quote, when his daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. That's it from that. So let's just take a moment to throw these hyperventilating male interpreters of Salome under a cold shower and restore to her the dignity that she deserves. Beginning with the fact that she was just a girl. She was not a sexually aware, mature woman. The Greek, use, the Greek used here is korazion, the diminutive form of kore, which means young woman. It clearly means an underaged girl. Nor is there any hint in the story that her dance was erotic. As decadent as Herod may have been, it's impossible to believe that he would have subjected his preteen stepdaughter to such a spectacle before the leaders of Galilee. That would not have reflected well on him. All of this makes me wonder what Salome herself would have felt. The poor thing had she known that she would be remembered for something awful that she never actually did. I imagine she would have been quite deeply upset, as anyone would be. I wonder if every time another play or opera or painting or movie came out about her, she was up in heaven cornering everyone she knew and saying, but that's not me. I never did that. They even got my name wrong. And I wonder... Aren't we all like that in a way, actually? Aren't we all fretting over elaborate fictions that have been almost arbitrarily attached to our names? Aren't we all a little bit more concerned about the stories people tell about us than we are about the reality of who we are? I have an old friend whose job requires that she live in a, a fairly public eye. She's not exactly world famous, but within the small city where she lives, she's something of a celebrity. Uh, people love to talk about her. Everyone has an opinion about her. They're, they love to share their opinion, and stories about her just fly around the town like a flock of birds. And most of the time, the stories are pretty positive, really. She, you know, some people find her inspiring, even. She gets cards and emails from people she doesn't know thanking her. Not for anything she's done, really, but rather for what she represents to them. She's a symbol to them. They have no idea who she really is. They don't even really want to know. They just want her to be what they want her to be. And her job is to not disappoint them. And most of the time, she's, she's pretty good at it. She once told me that if she didn't know any better, she'd believe those stories herself. But a little while ago, she got caught being just a normal, dumb human being. She had just gotten out of the hospital after some serious surgery, so she was already in quite a bit of pain. And on top of that, she was coming down with a migraine. So she was in line at the Starbucks, dressed desperate to get some caffeine into her system, because that really helps with the migraine, if you can get it in soon enough. And this guy in front of her was carrying on with the adorable barista, flirting with her, asking about her tattoos, 
And then he decided to change his order, which required the barista to call over the manager to fix the entry in the cash register. That's when my friend just, something just snapped inside her. And she laid into that guy with his lame hipster pork pie hat and his stupid skinny jeans and his sad little pot belly. And it was not pretty. And <laughs> the poor guy just about started to cry. And everyone was stunned. And she had to leave without her coffee. And of course, everyone was talking about it afterwards. And right away, the story expanded and got embellished. And Turns out, according to the story, that she actually hit the guy over the head with her purse and then called him a filthy word that she would never, ever use against anyone, no matter how stupid his neck tattoos were. <laughs> and so now everyone was talking about her, except nobody was actually talking about her. They never did actually ever talk about her. They talked about some idea they had created about her some movie they had made up in their minds starring some imaginary being only vaguely resembling the real her. And so now this discrepancy between the reality of who she was and the stories about who she was, this discrepancy that she had always been aware of and never really cared about as long as the stories were positive, now that discrepancy was vivid. And it was devastating to her. So the other day I asked her how she was doing with all this, and she said, you know, it's actually one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because for the first time in her life, really, she finally had to stop caring about the fictions other people were carrying in their heads about her. Whenever she started worrying about what other people were saying about her, she started to go a little bit crazy, and so she had to teach herself to just stop chasing after those phantoms. She had to stop thinking she could control those neurons that were firing in other people's brains. She had to come to terms with the fact that it was all completely out of her control, and it always had been completely out of her control. She had just never appreciated before just how attached she had been to those fictions people carried around in their brains. The hilarious futility of it all, she said to me, finally hit home when she heard some Buddhisty guy on YouTube talking about how we're all living in a dream. We're all walking around in one another's fictions and stories. We're all walking around creating dreams about one another built out of pure air. The person was born with a pretty face, so I, I trust her. That person wears socks with his sandals, so he, he's beyond help, you know? I mean, <laughs> that person likes Donald Trump. He must be evil. That person gave me a sideways glance, so uh, she doesn't like me. You know, we're all swimming around in these dream states. We think we're living in reality when we're actually stuck in a world of stories and judgments and opinions about one another that, you know, only dip into reality long enough to feed the dream machine in which we're, we are, you know, the hero, of course, of our own dreams, and we're, our worlds are populated by these evil geniuses and saintly heroes. And meanwhile, the truth, of course, is so much more complicated and so much more subtle 
and so much more lovely and really sad sometimes and poignant and beautiful. Reality, it turns out, is just absolutely gorgeous. By comparison, most of the stories about reality are just trite, worn out stereotypes and cliches. This morning, the prophet Amos has this vision of God. He appears as a bricklayer, and he's holding out a plumb line, this beautiful, simple tool that uses gravity to tell us whether or not our walls are true. He's presented as a judge, but he's not really judging us so much as he's measuring us against reality. He's not opening up our Facebook accounts. He's not counting up how many robot friends we have. He's not taking a poll or reviewing our resume or scanning our press releases. He's measuring us against reality to see how true we are. Because God's not interested in our dreams and our fictions. God's not interested in what people think of us or what we think of ourselves even. God's only interested in our reality, our sometimes sad, always poignant, incredibly beautiful reality that exists prior to all of our judgments and opinions. God could care less about the pathetic stories we make up about one another. God's only interested in our reality. And God is inviting us to wake up from our dream state Wake up to see one another in the complicated, interdependent, interconnected web of life that is our reality, because that is when we finally learn how to love. Amen.